Mark chapter 7, going to be in verses 1 to 23. Mark 7, 1 to 23. If you are using the Bible that's provided in the pew rack in front of you, that is on page 997. Page 997. Mark chapter 7, 1 to 23. If you're new to the Bible uh, and perhaps new to worship with us, uh, we have a regular practice of just walking through, of preaching through uh, different books of the Bible in order that the Lord might speak to us through His Word. And you'll see in the Bible there, uh, you'll see some larger numbers. Those are chapter numbers, and then smaller numbers are verse numbers. That'll help guide our time today. So as I reference uh, different verses in chapter 7, Uh, You can see those noted by the smaller numbers there. Let's pray and ask the Lord one more time to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, we do simply ask that you would speak to us now through your word. We ask that you would show us the dangers of hypocrisy and show us the dangers of mouths that profess one thing about you, but hearts that believe and practice another thing. And show us our Lord. And show us His grace that is available to hypocrites and to sinners such as us. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Few negative descriptions of an individual have quite the penetrating power or force like that of being called a hypocrite. In our day and age, we can lob insults at one another or we can call people names and many times somebody will be called a name or they'll hear an insult thrown their way and they will wear it like a badge of honor. They'll mock the one that has called them this or they'll think that this term is something to be proud of. But I don't know many people that boast in being called a hypocrite. To call someone a hypocrite is to say something fundamental about their very identity, about their very nature, about their character. It kind of reveals, in essence, a sense of being a fraud, being someone who is not quite what you present to others. There's a sense of being a fraud, but there's also a sense of being perhaps a coward that is found in hypocrisy. You see, in cowardice, perhaps you don't quite live up to or you don't quite apply the same things that you profess to believe and to practice. Now sometimes, the force in such a charge, like being called a hypocrite, the force in such a charge can be shrugged off simply by evaluating who it is that is making the charge against you. For instance, if somebody that I do not know or are not familiar with were to call me a hypocrite, It would probably hurt, but it wouldn't carry the same weight as if my wife were to call me a hypocrite. So you have the term and you have the person that levels the charge against you. But what about when God himself calls someone a hypocrite? What about when Jesus, God in the flesh, calls you a hypocrite. Consider the force and the weight behind such a charge. This morning, we are going to see Jesus do just that. 
And we're going to see who he calls hypocrites. And we're going to see what Jesus says hypocrisy is. Our text today in Mark 7, verses 1 to 23, is actually the longest recorded confrontation in the whole Gospel of Mark. And it's an account that is critical in the interactions between Jesus and the Jewish Pharisees and teachers of the law. Because in this account, Jesus confronts, illustrates, and explains the ugliness of hypocrisy in the lives of those who profess that they are following and even serving God. So let's read Mark 7, 1-23 together now. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and of pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Hypocrisy confronted, hypocrisy illustrated, and hypocrisy explained. Let's look at the players in this confrontation, first of all. You look and you see in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who have come from Jerusalem. 
And then you see they gather around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating, with, eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So we have kind of three players in this story, Pharisees and teachers of the law, Jesus, and Jesus' disciples. And now let's see the problem that is at the root of this confrontation. Or, or first of all, at least we're going to see the problem as the Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, described it or understood it. You see in verse 5, So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? See, these Pharisees and teachers of the law adhered to what was known as the tradition of the elders. Tradition of the elders was an oral tradition uh, in Judaism at this time that was uh, simply given in effort to help the people of God in order to help uh, the people of Israel to interpret and to live out the commands of God in their everyday life. And so sometimes they thought that, that the Word of God perhaps needed further expanding on or further clarification. And this Old Testament, or uh, this tradition of the elders was given for this purpose. And so they say that these disciples are violating the tradition of the elders when they're eating with unclean hands. They haven't washed their hands. They, they have uh, uh, violated some ceremonial understanding of uh, necessities in regards to eating. But where they see one problem, which is eating with unclean hands, Jesus sees a different problem. The problem that Jesus sees is not a matter of disciples eating with unclean hands. The problem that Jesus sees is a matter of people that profess to be following God who have unclean hearts. Not unclean hands, but unclean hearts. Jesus replies to them in verse 6 and reveals this very truth. He said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 in the Old Testament. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then he says in verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Isaiah, in Isaiah 29, the prophet Isaiah was, was speaking against the, the leaders and the rulers over the people of Israel hundreds and hundreds of years prior to this account. What he, what he was prophesying against was these leaders of Israel had essentially sold out their trust in God uh, in efforts to find provision and in efforts to find uh, uh, protection for Israel outside of God. Though they still worshipped God in practice and in habit, their hearts were in fact very far from God. And so Jesus, quoting this great Old Testament prophet Isaiah, says to these Pharisees and says to these teachers of the law who undoubtedly knew their Old Testaments very well, these leaders of Israel that the prophet himself spoke against, all that they embodied in their empty worship and in their empty affection for and love for God. Sure, the circumstances are a little different and we're separated by a few centuries, but your heart is in the exact same place. See, what they embodied and what Jesus was confronting is an abuse of the law of God that He had given to His people. They had added to the law that God gave His people, Israel. They had added to it in these rules about eating with unclean hands. 
If the law or Scripture is a line or, or a standard, they had gone above the line in imposing what they believed was needed and what they believed was appropriate. And yet they had added to the very law of God. See, this is a danger that we face in our own study and in our own application of God's Word. If Scripture is a line, we can face dangers of potentially going above the line, or we can face dangers of potentially going below the line. Above the line is to add to what God's Word says and to hold people to standards that God's Word does not impress upon them. It's legalism. To go below the line is to take away from what God's Word clearly teaches and what God's Word clearly instructs us, and it more liberally interprets God's Word and perhaps says, well, these commands do not apply to me today. Or culture is different, or circumstances or situations are different. So it's to take away from God's clear instruction from Scripture. And so there's two pictures here, going above the line and going below the line. And Jesus warns against this type of understanding of Scripture. And so as we seek to understand or we seek to think through how we interpret and how we apply God's Word and how we hold people to standards of what we believe God's Word to communicate... Perhaps we could think through it through uh, the lens of three different words, and these are something I got from a fellow pastor, thinking through convictions, persuasions, and opinions. Convictions, persuasions, and opinions. A conviction is something that Scripture clearly teaches and that we would expect one another to hold to. The Trinity, the deity of Christ, the necessary, uh, the necessary requirement of confession of sin and repentance and belief in Christ for salvation. That, those are examples of convictions that Scripture is clear on. Other things like persuasions are things that we think uh, that Scripture kind of points to or Scripture leans to, but we can't quite uh, make a case fully and clearly from Scripture that this is uh, definitely the case. So you have convictions, you have persuasions, and the last thing is opinion. Opinion is just something that's up in the air that Scripture doesn't really speak to one way or another. Now, legalism happens, or going above the line happens, whenever I try to make persuasions or opinions into convictions, and I try to hold people to standards that God's Word does not give. And this is what we see pictured here with the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Liberalism, or taking away from God's Word, happens when I try to take convictions that God's Word clearly communicates and bring those down to the level of being persuasions or opinions, thus robbing God's law of its, or God's word of its authority and its command over my life. So these pictures here, above the line, below the line, and we have a responsibility to stay on the line so as to not avoid hypocrisy in either direction. So let me ask you, are there subjects or matters about which you find yourself to be perhaps a little pharisaical or a little hypocritical? If you're like me, you might have something come to your mind but then if you ask those very close to you, they would give you a whole lot of other things that come to their mind about which you might be hypocritical or pharisaical. In fact, perhaps a good exercise for you after the service today, whether it be here or whether it be during a conversation on the way home or with a brother or sister throughout the week, would be to, in all seriousness, ask that brother or sister, hey, do you see any blind spots in my life where I might be hypocritical and my understanding of what it means to follow Christ. And brother or sister, if someone asks you that, in humility and in charity, serve your brother or sister and be honest with them. We have a responsibility to one another to help one another to learn, to love, and to trust, and to follow the Lord as he has instructed us in his word and not in what we think his word ought to say or what we wish it said as opposed to what it clearly does say. Let's serve one another in this manner. 
You see, Jesus sums up this whole confrontation with these words in verse 8 and these words of, of warning and caution to us as well. You have let go of the commands of God and you are holding on to human traditions. Perhaps you are with us today and you are not a Christian. You are exploring Christianity. You're curious about the claims of Christ or perhaps you are here simply uh, not out of a desire to necessarily learn more about Christianity or not out of a desire necessarily to, to uh, consider what it means for you to follow Christ, but you're here out of courtesy to a Christian who has invited you to join them for worship today. You probably, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, do not have any trouble or any difficulty understanding hypocrisy. Hypocrisy amongst professing Christians In fact, it might be a reason why you are, in fact, not interested in following Christ or not interested in learning or considering the claims of Christ. My friend, if you have seen hypocrisy on the part of professing Christians, whether in business transactions, in professional relationships, in personal relational relational conflict, or even in the home that you grew up in amongst those who profess to follow Christ, if you have seen that hypocrisy firsthand, and it has left you with a sour taste or even scars that are deeper than a sour taste in your mouth, I am sorry. I am sorry. And I hope that you will see in this exhortation that Jesus is not interested in hypocrisy amongst those who profess to be his people. And so with that understood, I encourage you to follow along with us in this passage today as you see how Jesus handles and how he approaches hypocrisy and how he gets to the essence of it, addresses it, and deals with it once and for all. So that is hypocrisy confronted. The the Pharisees and teachers of the law thought they were addressing the hypocrisy of the disciples. And Jesus flips the script and addresses their hypocrisy. Now let's see hypocrisy illustrated. Hypocrisy, uh, Jesus illustrated what hypocrisy looks like and how it comes to fruition in the following verses, in verses uh, 9 to 13. He used the example of what was known as Corbin. Now, Corbin was something like money or goods that had been vowed to or committed to God, therefore it could not be given to another recipient. There was a practice in place in which in Corbin, a man could go through a formal process of vowing like his financial possessions or his, or his material resources and vowing it to God and kind of making a sacrifice that this thing that I have belongs to God, therefore I can't give it to anyone else. But the problem with it was that in, in this practice, they would abuse it and say that, okay, I vowed, say, my, all of my financial resources to God. But then the reality is is that they would get to keep and use those financial resources as they saw fit. And then whenever they passed on, essentially then their resources would, in their inheritance, go to the temple. And so it was really being used in a manipulative way to keep them to yourself and to selfishly use them for your own gain and to not care for mother or father and those you had responsibility to care for. This is the illustration that Jesus gives in this. And Jesus notes, I want us to see in these verses, in verses 9 to 13, see the harshness of the language that Jesus uses to address this hypocrisy. And then also see the harm in which it brings upon others as well. So first we're going to see the harshness. In fact, pick up in verse 6, and then I want us to see all the times that Jesus uses this pointed language 
towards his audience here where he says, and uses the pronouns you and your, and he points the finger right at them, exposing the condition of their hearts. So Jesus replies in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. And now skip down to verse 8. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used for help, used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Jesus might as well have pointed at these people, gathered the crowd around, and said, look what we have here, folks. We have a group of people that are smarter and wiser and know more than God himself, and they are going to tell us a better manner of doing things. Jesus used this force to expose the heart of selfish pride that is at the root of hypocrisy. And the result of hypocrisy is that it causes harm to others. The heart at the root and the result is harm to others. The practice of Corbin was being used at its core for selfish purposes and to neglect biblical responsibility from the law to care for parents as they aged. Sometimes the harm of our hypocrisy can come about directly or indirectly. Selfishness harms others that we ought to be generous towards, but it also harms others in that it gives them a false picture of Christ and what it means to follow Christ. And so you have kind of two pictures here. The harm to mothers and fathers who are not being cared for by their children as they age. And the harm of false teaching about Christ and about God. Well, not about Christ in this picture, but about God and what He teaches in His Word. And this false teaching is being passed down and passed down by these Pharisees and teachers of the law. You see, that's one of the reasons Jesus is so firm to the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws that they had influence that they were abusing. See, whether you serve as a volunteer in children's or youth ministry, whether you teach a growth group, whether you disciple uh, someone else in the faith, whether you uh, simply seek to share the hope of the gospel with another individual, or whether or not you are standing before a congregation right now preaching a sermon at this very moment, we all must be aware that influence is a powerful weapon that we wield. And it is a weapon that can be abused. And sometimes it can be abused in unintentional manners. And there's a myriad of examples why. And so we must be aware of these. We must pray that the Spirit of God would give us insight into understanding how we use our influence for the sake of others as we seek to shepherd them towards Christ and towards His Word. You know, parents, let me ask you, is the picture of Christianity that you give to your child or to your teenager, or even your adult child that you converse with, is the picture of Christianity that you give to them one that is based upon rules or repentance? 
Do you foster an atmosphere in your home that drives at rules and standards, but makes no room for or does not model repentance and awareness of your own sin and your own need for forgiveness? Make no mistake, rules and discipline are good for children and they're good for all of us as they keep us in line in many ways. But the heart of the Christian faith that our children must see modeled in us and through us is that our righteousness rests not in our adherence to, God, uh, to, to a law that we cannot keep, but our righteousness rests in Christ's adherence to the law that He did keep, and we are frequent in our repentance before Him. May that be modeled in your home and before your children as you seek to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The illustration that Jesus gave was essentially one, this Corbin illustration was one of grown children dismissing or not caring for their aging parents. He was saying to those that were listening to him that they were violating the very commandment of God to honor their father and their mother. Perhaps if you have an aging parent or grandparent, you ought to consider how often you see them, how often you check in on them, how often you inquire about their well-being and about their care. We live in such an individualized culture where we save for retirement. We have uh, uh, great resources like assisted living facilities and nursing homes. And many times parents and grandparents do not want to be a burden to their kids and grandkids. And we understand that. But my brother and sister, may I encourage you to let your aging parents and grandparents be a burden to you. In your honoring of your aging mom and dad, in your honoring of your aging grandparents, you show dignity to them as image bearers of God and you model Christ-like humility in giving and sacrificing of yourself for their sake. See, here's what Jesus was illustrating with this, confront, this confrontation and this illustration of hypocrisy to this point. Actions and thoughts. Actions and thoughts that start here. Actions that live out in our hands. They cannot fix the heart. And this is the picture that Jesus is illustrating. The heart must fix the actions and thoughts. And so let's go on and let Jesus guide our consideration of hypocrisy and how to diagnose it in our own lives. We've seen it confronted, we've seen it illustrated, and lastly, let's see hypocrisy explained. Now Jesus begins to explain the point that He has been making in His interactions with the Pharisees and with the teachers of the law. And read on with me in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him. Notice he calls a crowd to him. He says, I want you to hear this. Everybody gather around. And he said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he let the disciples have it a little bit. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but it goes into their stomach, and then it goes out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Remember this truth that Jesus is bringing out. God does not care about unclean hands. He cares to address your unclean heart. He went on in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. Not what goes in, but what comes out. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. And each one of us needs to hear this. 
The essence of hypocrisy is not one person's ability or resolve or fortitude to hold to a moral standard that they think they must keep. The essence and the root of hypocrisy for all of us is found in our hearts. Jesus points out that you might very well check all of the boxes when it comes to your outward actions and your outward appearances, and you might have everyone around you even fooled. But he says, you do not fool God. As you check those boxes with your outward appearance, your heart is rich in envy, in arrogance, in slander, in lust, in greed, in strife, in malice, in discord, and deceit. And he's saying to his audience there, to the disciples who were gathered, and he's saying to you and to me, that he did not come to wash your hands and to bless your external behavior modification, but he came to give you a new heart and to give you in internal transformation. You see, that's the nature of Christ. He gets to the root. He gets to the motivations. He gets to the desires. The essence of the individual which can be hidden from everyone but him, and he gives you the honest diagnosis of your heart. But perhaps as you read this and your heart begins to feel heavy over your own very evil nature, and I use that word evil because Jesus used it himself, I want you to see the wonder of the editorial note that Mark gives at the end of verse 19. You see in parentheses parentheses there, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. There is wonder and there is power in that editorial note. You see, when Mark wrote his gospel, the audience that he was writing to in Rome was struggling with questions of clean and unclean foods. They, They had been converted, they had believed on Christ for salvation, and they're, kind of, they're coming out of this pagan, uh, pagan background, pagan understanding of, of, of life, and they're coming into Christianity and trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ and understanding Old Testament laws and what they're supposed to practice in regards to eating clean and unclean foods and what devotion to Christ looks like and how it ought to shape their behavior. And what we see highlighted is the reality that these ceremonial laws Uh, related to eating that were given to instill in the people of Israel awareness and reminders of God's holiness and the seriousness about which we must pursue holiness, all of these that were given, these truths of God's holiness still shine as brightly as the day the laws were given in the first place. But the holiness of God and the holiness that He requires of you and me is made visible and is complete not in ourselves and in our actions, but in Jesus and in His actions. In this editorial note, Mark didn't want his readers to go clean their hands. He wanted them to set their eyes on the one who creates new hearts. See, church family, there are so many ways in which even today we can be deceived into what we might call subtle, even palatable legalism. I deal with it every day. When I wake up, and my first thoughts are not immediately towards God's Word and towards prayer. And I start to think to myself, well, maybe my day, I don't think in this direct of terms, but my mind goes there and thinking my day will be a little smoother if I open God's Word and if I pray. Or God will be a little more pleased with me if this is the case. 
Brothers and sisters, we get subtle legalism about even very good spiritual disciplines in the life of the believer. But we go to Christ not seeking to clean our hands before Him, but seeking to look to Him who has created new hearts within us. As you beat yourself up over not getting things done that you feel you should have, as you beat yourself up over not measuring up to a standard that your mind has created or that you believe that you must adhere to, or even that Scripture commands and instructs you to pursue. Understand and remember that as you pursue holiness, as you pursue it, remember that Christ is freely yours, not by virtue of anything of yourself, but by virtue of His perfect righteousness. This is not the last encounter in Mark's Gospel between Jesus and the Pharisees and teachers of the law that have specifically come from Jerusalem. The next encounter will be one in which we will see the greatest illustration of hypocrisy that the world has ever seen. And it will be the manner by which Jesus would ultimately address hypocrisy and provide salvation out of hypocrisy. It will have these exact same players, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and Jesus, and even the disciples at the center of it. But in that moment, Jesus will not be the one who is putting the Pharisees and teachers of the law in their place, but He is the one who will go to His cross silently and trusting in the Lord and in His hand working salvation through Christ and His sacrifice. See, we will see a confrontation between these figures, and in the confrontation, the religious authorities will crucify Christ. They will crucify God in the flesh in what they think is very service to God Himself. In thinking they are serving God, they would kill the Son of God because they refused to repent and recognize that though they had the appearance of service to God, their hearts were far from Him. And that will be the ultimate illustration in the cross of the reality that hypocrisy harms, hypocrisy even kills. But righteousness and righteousness and trusting oneself to God and to His care for them gives life. And our hope rests not in the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that time. Our hope rests in the righteousness of Christ who was perfect in His adherence to God's law and who is the fulfillment of all that it would anticipate. You see, Jesus quoted from Isaiah in verses 6 and 7 to describe the state of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when He said, these people, they honor Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. They worship Me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Isaiah, though, later on in Isaiah 66, he would answer the question of, okay, so what kind of person does the Lord look to? He looks to the ones on whom he finds they are humble and they are contrite in spirit and they tremble at his word. Brothers and sisters, it is a woeful thing to be called a hypocrite and it is especially woeful to be called a hypocrite by God himself. But there is grace in him. Forsake the traditions of man and in repentance come and tremble before God and His Word. Resolving that you will not go above the line, that you will not go below the line, that you will open yourself up for correction and admonishment from brothers and sisters who have your best interests at heart as they seek to serve you in marching to glory and as they ask you to serve them in exposing blind spots that they may have. Pursue these conversations with charity and with clarity and with grace 
And look and look and see that though there's this evil nature that was at the root of your heart, and this vain righteousness that is at your inner disposition that tries to climb up, that tries to manifest itself out, see the perfect righteousness that you are clothed in, in Jesus, that releases you from the burden of legalism, and that releases you from the burden of feeling like there's a standard by which you have to measure up on your own. And look to Him and see that He atoned for your hypocrisy at the cross and find grace in repentance that is frequent and that is full and find grace and find mercy in a heart that looks upon Him in humility and knows that I shall see the Lord and I will see Him in His glory. The, the scary thing about this passage is these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they were encountering and dealing with the very God that they had spent their whole lives studying, and they could not hear His warning to them. In humility and in repentance, you hear the warning of God and you find grace for the most hypocritical of hearts that you might have. Let's pray together. Lord God, we ask that you would, as we consider this word, you would give us the grace to submit ourselves under it and to pursue hearts that trust in you and not in ourselves, hearts that trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ and not in the vain, empty efforts and attempts at righteousness in our own strength. Lord, be merciful to us in this and show us the Savior and show us His goodness and His provision and show us the mercy of the fact that He came for us and the mercy and the reality that His perfect righteousness is ours. Therefore, we can trust You and we can come to You not feeling like we have to clean our hands to get to You but knowing that you have created and have given us new hearts in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.